The title of the sermon tonight, if you're taking notes, I really hope that you are, it's Why Not Memphis Part 2. Why not Memphis? And when we say why not Memphis, we're saying why could God not send a revival to this city? Why could God not use you to reach the city of Memphis? Our city is filled with brokenness. It's filled, Chris, with, with sin. It's filled with sin and it needs a savior. So why not Memphis? Why could we not see God do an incredible work here at Memphis? Now, before I recap Nehemiah 1, let me tell you the theme of what tonight's going to be, because I'm taking the biggest theme of Nehemiah chapter 2, and that's where we're going to land tonight. Tonight, we are essentially going to talk about calling, <laughs> our calling, which is a very popular topic amongst college students. I got to tell you, my job, literally what I do is I work with college students. I, I get to live life with college students. It's the greatest joy of mine and Hannah's life is to be a part of your life. And the conversation I have the most with college students, if I could sum it up, it's dating, right? That's the biggest hot topic. Pastor, when should I date? Who should I date? Why should I date? You know, how should I date? And take all of them. And uh, the second one is calling. I sit down with you, I have conversations with you, and these are the questions you ask me. You say, Daniel, I don't know what I am called to do. How do I know my calling? How do I know what I'm supposed to do with my career? How do I know what I'm supposed to do with my life? How do I know if I am obeying God's call or not? How do I know if I'm rushing into God's call? How do I know if I'm waiting too long on God's call? I have conversations with you all the time about calling. Well, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to look at Nehemiah embrace and accept his calling in the midst of fear and adversity. Have you ever in your life struggled with fear or adversity? Have you been there? When you especially, let me tell you this, when you try to live according to God's will, you better be prepared for the world to try to scare you. <laughs> when you try to live for God in a world that's not living for God, the world's going to try to punk you. They're going to try to get you to back down on your faith. And we're going to see Nehemiah stand up and rise up to that challenge. And that's my prayer for you. But I do have a warning. Sam, I have a warning about sermons on calling, and I want to give this to you from the jump because I see this happen with a lot of college students, and I struggle with it myself. Here's my warning. You take this however you want to. Do not miss your calling today because you're too obsessed with your calling for tomorrow. That's my warning. One way I see college students miss it is they are obsessed with their calling for tomorrow, but they're not obsessed with what God has told them to do today. And that's an amazing thing. In fact, the way to, watch this, the way to reach your calling in the future is by obeying God right here in the present. You will never get to your calling in the future if you cannot obey God in the present. And I love this because Psalm 119, 105, a verse that's very encouraging, you should memorize this, it says that your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I'll read it one more time. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. In other words, God's calling is a step-by-step -step process, not a mile-by-mile -mile process. But we, me included, often want to make it a mile-by-mile -mile process. But what God knows is God knows you never get to a mile until you're willing to take one step. See, the way to get to a mile of obedience is one step of obedience at a time. And in fact, God might not reveal the next year to you, but you can better believe he'll reveal the next step. That's where college students get frustrated. They're not willing to take the step unless God reveals the year. And that's where, as Kobe said, we want to control our circumstances and we want to try to control God. He don't work like that. In fact, if you add up enough steps, Lauren, of daily obedience each day, if you just take one step of obedience in your calling a day and add them up, 
Ellie, you'll find yourself with a lifetime of walking in obedience with God. That's how you live out your calling. So as we talk about calling, let me give you a warning. Don't miss college because you're so focused on the next season. If Jesus is your reason for life, don't bow down to a season of life. Who's your reason for life? You have been called to your college right now. That's your calling. If you are obsessed about what's next, you're going to miss what is currently in front of you. So that's my warning. You can take it however you want to, but I got to tell you, it's very, very important. Please do not miss that God's calling is a step-by-step process, not a mile-by-mile process. You take it one day at a time. Now, with Nehemiah, very quickly in chapter 1, do you remember what we talked about last week? Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. He has a prominent role in the government. He's in Susa, Persia, which is 900-plus miles away from Jerusalem. He has a great setting from a career standpoint, from a trust standpoint with the king. He has a great thing going. On paper, you would never want to leave that kind of situation. It would almost be as you moving to a big city, having a great job, being trusted by somebody of power and influence, and then you wanting to leave to go to a city that's broken down in ruins to restore the glory of a God that most people don't believe in. That's what Nehemiah essentially does. He hears the report in chapter 1. He hears the report that Jerusalem is in ruins. God's not being glorified. They're mocking the Israelites who have just come out of slavery. They're mocking them. They're saying, hey, where's your God now? Is he not coming to help you rebuild the wall? Where's your God now? We see that your city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. Is your God not going to come help you now? And God's being mocked. But even more than that, what Nehemiah saw in chapter 1 is that the people of God, because there was an attack on their faith, there was an attack on their identity. See, when the devil, when the world comes after your faith, He's really attacking who you are. So the people who have returned to Jerusalem, they're struggling with an identity crisis. They're struggling with who they are. Have you ever been there before? I have. There have been many, 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 many times in my life where I have struggled with who I am and what I'm supposed to do. Nehemiah hears this report about Jerusalem. Bless you. And his heart breaks. Remember, Peyton, we talked about last week. Nehemiah's heart breaks. He mourns for days. He fasts for days. He prays. We studied his prayer last week over this report. Now where we come to in chapter 2, it's time to do something about it. I love prayer. We've been emphasizing prayer for the last 30 days, as crazy as we can, praying every single night at the U of M. But I got to tell you, if we're praying to God and then not going and acting for God, what are we really praying for? (laughs) All right. Sometimes we need to go do what we have been praying about God to bring to us. And and, and man, I could stay on that, but I can't because I'm going to end on time tonight. (laughs) We need to act sometimes. That's what God's calling us to do in the midst of our prayers. So as we look at chapter 2, understand this. Nehemiah is going to approach King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes does not believe in God. He's a pagan king. He does not worship Yahweh, does not worship the true king, and he's going to approach him. Now, this is a tense situation. As we read chapter 2, you do not need to have this mindset that Nehemiah is just coming to one of his buddies saying, Hey, man, I'm going to go on a little retreat. I'm going to go help out with the wall for a little bit. But you know, I'll be right back. I got you, man. And the king's like, oh, okay, cool. Sounds good, man. Just take your time. No, this is a tense situation, okay? This is an overwhelming moment for Nehemiah. And let me tell you something. As you read this moment in Scripture, you're going to have moments like this in life. Nehemiah doesn't back down. Will you? Will I? This is a tense moment in the life of Nehemiah. Let's take a look at it. Chapter 2 starting in, the, in verse 1. It says, now we're going to read 
all of these verses right now, and then we're going to come back and pick them apart one point at a time. In verse 1 it says, During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I, meaning Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. Look at this. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Let's stop right here for just a moment. In ancient times, and you would miss this often when reading scripture. In ancient times, it was forbidden to be sad in the presence of a king. Did you know that? I you didn't know that. In ancient times, it was forbidden to be sad in a king's presence. So what Nehemiah is doing here, Tyler, this is risky. God bless you. This is risky. And the thought was, watch this, this is kind of arrogant, I'll be honest with you. The thought was, you should never be sad in a king's presence because the king was so joyful to be around that you'd forget about all your troubles. (laughs) Can you imagine being that arrogant? (laughs) Can you imagine thinking like, man, everybody who comes in my presence should instantly forget about all their troubles because I'm so pleasant to be around, amen? (laughs) And that was the mindset. So the fact that Nehemiah is sad in his presence and that he's never been sad before, that's because he's risking his life, but he can't control his sadness anymore over the brokenness that exists in Jerusalem. So there's a little something for you. Now, verse 2, the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was overwhelmed with fear. Nehemiah in this moment is overwhelmed with fear. And he replies to the king, look at this, may the king live forever, probably something he said often. He says, why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king asked me, what is your request? That's a big line right there. We're going to come back to that. The king asked, what is your request? So right here, so I prayed to the God of the heavens in verse 5 and answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, the king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? And then look at this. So I gave him a definitive time and it pleased the king to send me. Let's start. Let me make one point here. We're going to come back and make a lot of points in this. But let me make one point right now. Nehemiah gave him a definite time. That means within Nehemiah's prayers, God had also given him a plan. The only way he could give a definitive time is that Nehemiah knew what he was going to do because God had given it to him. Listen, when you pray and you really submit to God's will, you'll be amazed at how God will provide you with plans in your life. You'll be amazed. But it can't come without prayer. Nehemiah has been broken by the Lord in order to receive a plan as to how to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's because he tells the king that he has a plan and he can give him a timeline. It's because Nehemiah's prepared both spiritually and mentally, physically. It's because he's prepared that, look, the king actually sends him. It pleased the king to send me. Sometimes the lost world doesn't just need to see that you love Jesus, but they need to see that you have a plan as to how to glorify him with your life too. Sometimes they need to see that you're not just willing to walk around saying the name of Jesus all the time, but you actually have a plan as to how to live your life for him. But some of us in here, we have no plan. We have no plan. And I'm not talking about a five-year plan. I'm not talking about a one-year plan. I'm talking about some of us wake up in the morning, and we have no plan for that day as to how we're going to do what we're called to do, which is glorify God and grow his kingdom. 
We just float through life. We just float through our classes. I'm already getting off. We just float through our classes. We float through work, and whatever happens, happens. And then what ha- ends up happening is we never pray because we didn't plan it. We never share the gospel because we didn't plan it. And we never love the other believers around us because we never plan to call them or send them a text. Most times, if we don't let God give us a plan for the day, we'll just float through and do whatever our flesh wants. Nehemiah prayed and God gave him a plan. When you start your day with prayer, God will give you a plan for the day. But that might be all he gives you, Trey. (laughs) He might just give you a plan for that day, maybe that morning, maybe that hour. He gives you a plan to call somebody, to text somebody. When you pray, God will start impressing on your heart plans. And it's one step at a time. Not only that, look at this. We're going to jump down to verse 10. When Sam Ballot and Tobiah heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites. They were greatly displeased. No surprise here. Newsflash for me too. When we choose to go and try to glorify God, there's going to be people that are displeased with you. I got to tell you, I got to be honest with you. We're going to look at it all through the book. When you choose to do what God has called you to do, don't be surprised when people are displeased that you're actually going to do it. Did you notice that the opposition didn't come in chapter 1 when he was praying? The opposition came when it was time for Nehemiah to actually go do it. See, some of us don't experience opposition in our lives, and it's because we're praying, but we're never actually going and doing it. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I know we're getting into it quick, but when you set out to actually live out your faith, opposition will arise. Opposition will come. People will be displeased with you. When I decided to pastor, there were people that were not happy about it. But I got to obey God, not man. Amen? And the same thing is for you. Verse 11, he gets there. He's in Jerusalem. It says, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Have you ever met somebody that tells you every single thing they plan to do for God? (laughs) I've been that way sometimes. I see you appreciate your honesty. I've been there. Sometimes we tell every single person in our life what we want to do for God instead of telling God what he should do for us in our lives. Sometimes we tell others before we're willing to talk to God about it and let him give us the instructions. Nehemiah didn't tell anybody about it. Look at this, verse 12. I got up at night, took a few men with me. Verse 13, I went, through, I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's wheel, jumping down here to verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. And then Nehemiah says to them, I love this because he addresses the obvious. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a, excuse me, disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this work. I got three things very quickly for you on your calling. Number one, your calling takes time. Not an amen in the entire room. Amen. Amen. We don't like this. Kobe talked about in his testimony. We don't like this, but your calling takes time. Now, what's cool here? Go back to verse 1. In the very first verse, if if you're willing, the very first verse of chapter 2 tells us the month that this happened. Did you catch that? It says the month of Nisan in the 20th year. Most times when we read scripture, 
we brush over details like this, and we really don't give them much thought. At least I do. A lot of times I look at a passage when I'm trying to read it, and this is how my flesh is. I look at what I got here. I'm going to choose what I think is the most important parts, pull those out, kind of ignore the rest of it. It's the details, names and charts and stuff like that. We don't really pay attention to it. But when you don't understand why Nehemiah is telling you the month, you miss a huge part of what God is trying to reveal to you. See, Nehemiah considered it significant enough to tell you the month it happened that he actually approached the king. And here's why, Shane. Understand this. Nehemiah tells us the month that this happens so that we, God bless you, would understand the timeline he's working with. I want you to hear me for a minute. From chapter 1, when Nehemiah begins to pray, to chapter 2, the month of Nisan, when he actually goes to the king. Do you know how much time has passed? between chapter 1 and chapter 2. The moment he gets this burden from God to the moment he acts on it, do you know how much time has passed? Watch this. The amount of time that has passed here is four months. Four months. I want you to think about that. Nehemiah prayed for four months about what God was putting on his heart. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you or I prayed about something for four months? Four straight days. Because <laughs> if you're like me, I pray two days and I forget, and I'm like, what was I praying for? This brother prayed for four months. In fact, he allowed God to work and cultivate in his heart the work that God was wanting to do before he went and did anything about it. He didn't talk to anybody. He didn't go to other people. He wasn't doing it for show. He wasn't walking around, man, telling people like, man, I was broken and crying over Jerusalem the other day, man. You've been broken lately? <laughs> Maybe you'll get like me. You need to weep more. Man, he wasn't doing that. He had this burden. God began to do something, and he took it to God every single day. And here's why. I wrote this down on my notes. What he realized is he realized that before God calls you to do his work externally, you have to allow God to do his work internally. It's right here. Before God calls you to do his work externally, you have to allow him to do his work internally. Nehemiah realizes this. That's why for four months he lets God fulfill the work God has internally in Nehemiah's heart. He lets God prepare him. In fact, Philippians 2, verse 13 speaks of this exact thing. I'm going to give you a minute to write this down. Philippians 2, 13 says this. I love it. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. I got to tell you, you cannot do God's work if God has not done his work in you. You will end up doing your work and trying to disguise it as God's work, and that's real. That's where people like me, like you, do ministry for our credit and our glory, but we disguise it like it's for God's glory. Who are we reaching the 7% for? For the nation to look at us and say, man, that city blew up. They're amazing. And no. Do we want God to get all the credit and all the glory? So you have to allow God to do his work in you. That's why Nehemiah takes four months so that God can do a work in him. But not only that, you know what else Nehemiah and Melody was praying for for four months during that time? He was praying for King Artaxerxes. In chapter 1, at the end of his prayer, he says, Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king. Nehemiah realized he could not, Drew, he could not change King Artaxerxes' heart. And he knew that if he's ever going to go to the king, 
and ask the king for the king who doesn't believe in God to let him go back and restore God's glory in Jerusalem, that he's going to need God's favor on his side. And so he prays for King Artaxerxes. This is a pagan king. He doesn't like Jerusalem. He doesn't believe in God. The only way this is going to happen is by a miracle of God. And Nehemiah can't change the king's heart. And I got to tell you, you can't change anybody's heart either. You don't have the power to change anybody's heart, no matter how hard you try. You can't do it. You can't change your mom's heart. You can't change your dad's heart. You can't change your sibling's heart. You can't change your fraternity and sorority people's heart. You can't change your teammate's heart. You can't change your professor's heart, no matter how hard it is. You can't change it. But Nehemiah prays for King Artaxerxes because he realizes even though Nehemiah can't change the king's heart, he knows the one who can. (laughs) You know the one who has the power to change hearts. You know the one who has the power to move in the people around you and in their heart. And Nehemiah prayed for four months before going to the king because he knew if God was not working supernaturally in the king's life too, that Nehemiah doesn't have a chance to do this, so he prays for him. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to pray for the hearts of the people in your life? Your mom. Oof. And there's some in here that aren't willing to pray for their mom. There's some in here who knows God has been calling them to forgive their mom, but they haven't done it. I don't know who. You know who. Your dad. Your professors. I see you. Your professors. Your peers. You can't change their hearts, but God can. Are you willing to pray for it? Because Nehemiah prays for four months. Oftentimes, we pray for a day for somebody's heart, and when we don't see instant change on our timing, we quit, we give up, and we quit praying for them. Is it your timing or God's timing? You tell me. Amen. Then keep praying. Why would you quit? Why would you pray for a month for somebody in your life to come to know Jesus and it doesn't happen and then you quit praying? Did you not believe for those 30 days? Why quit? And I'm preaching to myself too. Why quit? Why? Nehemiah didn't. And when it came time in this moment, For him to ask King Artaxerxes to go, King Artaxerxes could have replied, off with his head. Kill him. He's been sad in my presence. He's trying to leave me. Kill him. I'm not letting him go back to Jerusalem. I don't like Jerusalem anyway. Kill him. But when the king, and I told you to remember in your Bible, when the king looks at Nehemiah and says, what is your request? Nehemiah knew a prayer has been answered. But that's so small, ain't it? Because when the king asks, what is your request? That means God has softened this king's heart to be open to the idea of Nehemiah going. So as you pray for your professors, your sorority sisters, your fraternity brothers, your teammates, your classmates, your family, as you pray for them, God can soften their heart to be more open to the gospel and to your testimony. And it might be the tiniest thing of you going to your mom and saying, mom, I'd love to share what God's been doing in my life. And you might expect her to say, no, off with his head. (laughs) Because I hope your mom wouldn't say that. And but she doesn't, and she looks at you and she says, okay, tell me. And that's the answer to prayer you've been looking for. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how you can apply, and there's 10,000 different applications you can make from this. But Nehemiah prays and lets God do a work in his heart, but he also prays for King Artaxerxes, and God does a work there. The fact that a pagan king would send Nehemiah with supplies to go rebuild Jerusalem in the name of God is a miracle. What could God do with your prayers? What could God do with your prayers? Let's keep moving. Don't Quit praying for the people in your life. And I love verse 4. Go to it, if you will, with me. Verse 4, the king asked me, what is your request? And then I love this. I was talking to my wife about this. It says, 
Nehemiah says, so I prayed to God of the heavens and answered the king. I love this moment because Nehemiah is doing something we should all do. He's praying in the moment. (laughs) He's praying in the moment. Like he's standing face to face with a pagan king and he's praying. I love your prayer closet. I love the park I go to to pray. But don't you know that you can pray all throughout the day because the veil has been torn? That you can pray in the middle of your classrooms before and after. Isn't that crazy? That the God of of the heavens and the earth has made himself that available to you? Some of us in here idolize rappers and bands and celebrities. You can try to DM Drake all you want. He ain't never going to hit you back. (laughs) It ain't never going to happen. You can try all you want. Your favorite band, if they have more than 200,000 followers, they're not going to see that message. But we will all day long just wishing. What's crazy is we try so hard to get the attention of those who are celebrities and in power and have influence in this world. Yet we have the attention of the God of the heavens and the earth and most of us could care less. He prays in this moment. Here's what I love. Even though Nehemiah is standing in front of a king, he knows he's praying to the king. (laughs) So even though he's overwhelmed with fear, he stands up anyway because he realizes, yes, I may be speaking to a king, but if I have the king on my side, what do I have to be afraid of? Let me ask them, will you ever in your life come across anybody that's as intimidating as God? Uh, uh, uh. If you think there's even close, you don't understand how scary God is when you don't know him. The wrath of God. <laughs> the Egyptians knew. The Egyptians felt the wrath of God. Why they should fear God when the, when the sea closed over them. If you have the king walking with you, there's no a king that you could ever come across that you should be afraid of because you know the king. And that's why he prays. He knows who's walking with him. He knows what power and authority he has. And if you're a believer, you have it too. You have it too. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What do you have in this world to be afraid of? What? You have the king on your side. Nehemiah prays to the God of the heavens and the earth. And God answers The prayers. God softens the king's heart. God is the best heart surgeon you will ever meet. God can heal a heart. God can soften a heart. And God can replace a heart. Anybody who calls out on the name of the Lord Jesus with the intention in their heart to repent of their sins, confess him as Lord, can be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God can replace your heart, that heart of stone, that hard heart, that callous heart, with a soft heart of flesh. He will give you a new heart when you give your life to him. Anybody who chooses to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus can come to know Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever. So are you here tonight and you don't know Jesus? We've prayed for you. Some are praying right now in this moment, like Nehemiah did, that you would give your life to Jesus tonight. I believe God brought you here for a reason, to hear Kobe Drake's testimony. I believe God brought you here to see Sam Johnson's baptism. I believe God brought you here tonight to hear the word, for your heart to be pierced, not by me. This ain't Daniel's rule. This is the Bible. I just preach whatever it says and deal with the emails later. <laughs> just deal with the emails later. Just filter them. <laughs> I believe God brought you here tonight to soften your heart, to either repent of that sin you're sick of in your life or to give your life to Jesus once and for all. 
Please do not delay that. I need to keep going. All right, let's see what I'm saying. <laughs> but it took four months for Nehemiah's prayer to be answered. Or how long are you willing to wait on God? The reason why is because God is not in a rush. Even as like I'm looking at the clock, like I'm in a rush, I'm trying to be respectful of your time, like I'm, I get in a rush, you get in a rush with your classes and your degrees, and we get in a rush with trying to get married and trying to find a boyfriend or girlfriend, and nothing wrong with those things at all, but we get in a rush with those, like God is not in a rush. And the reason why is because God does not bow down to time, time bows down to God. And don't you ever forget that. In fact, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Dear friends, do not overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Do not ever forget that time will bow down to God, but God will never bow down to time the way you and I do. So whose timing are you willing to live on? Yours or God's? Because with your calling, whether it's getting to your career whether it's getting to that next phase of life, whether it's a marriage, all good things, whatever it is, God's going to answer that prayer on his timing. Are you willing to wait for God? Because I got to tell you, you don't want to live on your timing anyway. If all your prayers were answered on your timing, where would you be? I wouldn't be anywhere good. <laughs> I'm glad that God is willing to tell me no and to tell me wait. Not in the moment. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. When God tells me no or wait in the moment, I'm frustrated like a little kid. <laughs> But I'm glad that he's willing to tell me that. Don't get in a rush. Not only that, but number two, your calling can be scary. Woo, amen. Not only does your calling take time, it's slow process, a step-by-step -step process of obeying God, but it can also be scary. And what I mean is, look with me at verse two. Nehemiah tells us very clearly he's scared. Don't you love that? <laughs> like we asked Kobe if he was nervous about his game Saturday, and he's like, yeah, a little bit, you know, I'm kind of, there's some nerves there and stuff like that. Nehemiah ain't holding back. Nehemiah's like, man, I was terrified. <laughs> like I was kind of punked out. I was scared a little bit. He says he was overwhelmed with fear. But not only that, did you notice in verse 10? They were greatly displeased. Samballot and Tobiah were greatly displeased at what God was doing. But not only that, look at verse 19. Here they are again. These two jokers. <laughs> These two winners. <laughs> Samballot and Tobiah heard about this. Verse 19, they mocked and despised this and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah's in a very scary situation. Not only did he approach a pagan king, but he is receiving Keegan attacks on the calling he is living out. Can I ask you a question? I'm not asking this sarcastically or expecting an answer. I'm asking this genuinely. Have you ever faced opposition over your beliefs in Jesus Christ? Has there ever been a time that you were persecuted because of your faith in Jesus? One pastor said to me when I was a college student, he said, hey, Daniel, if you went back to your college classrooms, it was like November, the end of the semester. He's like, hey, if you went back to your college classroom and told everybody that you're a believer, would they be surprised? <laughs> and I was a new believer. I was like, yeah, they probably would. And I was like, why? He was like, why? And I was like, because I haven't talked about Jesus at all. And he was like, so if you hadn't talked about Jesus at all, have you faced any persecution over your faith? And I was like, no. And he was like, do you think there's something off with that? Since the Bible tells us to count it joy when we face trials of various kinds, when we're persecuted for our faith. So, college students, I'm not getting on you, but I want to ask you, if you have never faced any opposition for the name of Jesus, 
Are you living for Jesus? Or is being a believer just kind of like a, a little a tag that you have that you kind of tuck away, like the, a tag on a shirt that you try to hide so nobody will see? Is it just a, an add-on? Is it a side piece of your meal that you can scoot away at the table so nobody sees? Like it's the mashed potatoes and the steaks right here. And the steaks, your college career, and you're fine with everybody seeing it. But the believer, being a believer in Christ, you just kind of slide that off to the side and bring it out when nobody's around. Is Jesus your main thing or is he just an add-on that you bring up when you're comfortable? I'm not getting on you. I'm asking the same things I ask myself. When I see Nehemiah overwhelmed with fear and he still stands up to opposition, I get convicted. I want to stand up for my faith. Do you? I think we should face opposition over our faith. If we're truly living counterculturally, then we should be oppressed and attacked by the culture. Not that we should pursue that, but there should be something different about us. But if we can walk onto our campuses as a believer and have an entire semester where we're never attacked for our faith, what are we doing? <laughs> Nehemiah's greatest fear has come true. He is standing in front of a pagan king and having to leave a great situation to go restore Jerusalem, and yet he's happy to go obey God. That's what's amazing. God is very good at calling us out of our comfort zone, isn't he? <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, God is very good at calling you to do the thing that scares you the most. He is very good at it. One of the biggest questions I get asked is this right here. Daniel, how did you know you were called to full-time ministry, and how did you know you were called to preach? We're talking about calling tonight. How did you know you were called to full-time ministry, and how did you know you were called to preach? I have girls ask me about it. I have guys ask me about it. There's many in this room who are working through a call to full-time vocational ministry of working at a church. There's some in here who are called to work a secular job, to be a nurse, to be an engineer, and to glorify God in that. There's all different kind of callings in the room. And when I was in the 10th grade, I had an English class at Bartlett High School. Now, I'm going to be honest. I was an awkward high schooler, okay? <laughs> I'm just be honest. I had long Justin Bieber hair. <laughs> yes, hey, and I rocked it too. Just kidding. <laughs> and this is what I would do. I would wake up in the mornings. I'd wake up in the mornings, I would shower, and I would style my hair exactly how I would want it, and then I would go lay on the couch and fall asleep for another hour so it would dry perfectly, and then I would get up and head out the door just so my hair would dry perfectly. I was a loser. <laughs> I was a loser. And I have a picture of me that'll come up on the screen when I was... <laughs> yes, amen. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It is embarrassing. Gosh, Lee. My head was turned because my hair was so heavy on that side of my head. <laughs> it weighed my head down. I remember walking in the cafeteria and someone was like, why are you walking around like this? Oh, it's because my hair's going that way. <laughs> Let's get this picture off screen. I can't look at it no more. <laughs> I can't look at it no more. Not for real. <laughs> they didn't know if I was serious. They're like, he probably won't sit up there a little longer. You know, no, 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 we can take it off. I regret doing this. <laughs> And uh, that's, what, that's what kind of high school I was. You know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't make it for basketball very long because I didn't grow anymore, and I couldn't get my shot off very quickly. I just wasn't that athletic. I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't popular. I was very quiet. I was a nice guy. Like, I wasn't rude to people. I wasn't mean. I was a nice guy. I wanted to do the right thing, but I fell into a whole lot of sin. I fell into marijuana. I fell into sin with girls. I, I fell into a lot of sin that we've talked about openly in here because I didn't know Jesus. And I tried to put my value and my worth in anything in this world. And no matter what, I couldn't find my identity. I couldn't find what I was supposed to do. And so because I was kind of awkward, because I was kind of shy, because I was kind of weird, you know, I remember having to give a speech in that 10th grade English class. I remember like it was yesterday. The teacher was Miss Steele. I don't know if she's still at Bartlett. 
But she, she was, she's there. Yeah. Well, ask her about that. I'll bring her up here. She'll share on stage. She's doing the testimony next week. <laughs> Just kidding. She might be watching this on Facebook. Um, I remember walking up there, and I had my piece of paper, and I remember standing up in front of the class, and it was time to give the speech. And I was so nervous. I was so sick over this. And I remember looking out, and I, I had my paper. I looked up, and just like in this moment, I saw all these eyes on me. And this was my worst fear. My worst nightmare was to have eyes on me. I didn't want to. I wanted to escape by in the class, sneak through, not be seen by anybody, not be heard by anybody, and just make it stock shelves at Walmart for the rest of my life. That was my plan, was to stock shelves at Walmart every night with my earbuds in, never go to college, never do anything, didn't want to get married, never wanted to do anything with my life. And I remember standing up there at the front of the class with my paper, and I could not stop my hands from shaking. Just like this, as violently as this, my hands would shake. So I was so nervous. I was so scared. And I can remember on the front row seeing the girl that was on the front row look at me with, like, shock on her eyes, like I was, you know, being taken up or something. <laughs> like looking at me as my hands were shaking. No matter what I could do, I could not stop my hands from shaking. I could not do it. I was so scared. I was so afraid to speak in front of a class. And that's how I was for the next seven years, terrified to speak in front of anybody. So please understand this. When God called me to preach, he called me to the one thing that I never wanted to do in my entire life, which was public speaking. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> God called me to do my greatest fear because he knew it would bring him his greatest glory. One thing I wrote down is God may call you to your greatest fear because he wants to activate your greatest faith in him. He knew that when he would call me to preach, I would have to depend on him for every sermon because I can't do this on my own. And you know what? God very likely is going to call you to that which you are most afraid of because he's good like that. He's God like that. He knows that when he calls you to your weakness, when he calls you to something that is not your sweet spot, that you will fully depend on him. See, when God gets you fully out of your comfort zone, that's when you'll fully start to rely on him. But until you stay in that comfort zone, you're never going to fully rely on God. So are you okay with God calling you to do the one thing that you never thought you would do? Ever. Isn't that amazing? What is God calling you to do in your life that you're afraid of and you said no? You think about that for a minute. You think about that. What could God be calling you to do that you're afraid of? Because scripturally, oh man... It lines up. God led Moses and the Israelites to the scariest moment of their entire lives. Do you remember that, Bree? At the Red Sea, nowhere to go, being chased by Egyptians, they're about to be killed. Don't forget, God led them to that moment. God led the Israelites to the moment at the Red Sea that was terrifying and fearful, and they had nowhere to go. And look at what Moses says in that moment to those people. He says in Exodus chapter 14, here it is on the screen, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. See, when you realize you have God on your side, there's nothing to be afraid of. He says, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Moses feared public speaking and leadership too. 
For 40 years, he was a shepherd, became the meekest man on earth, stripped of that arrogant confidence he had at 40, and God calls him to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery when he was 80 years old. None of us would choose the 80-year-old Moses. None of us. He was meek, he was lowly, and yet God chose him to lead a nation out of slavery. So what you don't think you can do, that's okay, because God will show you that if you have his power through you, you can do all things through Christ. But yet we take that verse out of context. For his glory. The last thing Paul in the New Testament ever thought he would be doing was ministering to Christians. Because he was killing them. Murdering them. Stoning them. Has an encounter with Jesus. His life's radically changed. Next thing you know, he's planting churches in every major city he can. Chasing after souls. Never thought he would be a pastor. Never thought he would be a preacher. Can you imagine? So for you, what is it that you have said no to God for because you're afraid? It's when you do the thing that you are afraid of most that God has called you to that you will fully rely on him in that. That's the moment Nehemiah's in. He's overwhelmed with fear. He's all the way out of his comfort zone, and he has to rely on God for this. Is there a major or a degree God's calling you to study, but you've said no? Has God called you to share the gospel with somebody in your life, but you're afraid, so you've said no? I mean, really tell me, at what point does your yes to God become a no to God? At what point do you say, all right, God, I've had enough, I'm out? Because that's the point God's trying to get you to say yes to. For some in the room, I want to talk about this for a brief moment. There's some in the room who have been for a long time working through a call to full-time church ministry. And what I mean in that is there's people in here who will be future pastors one day. There's people in here who will be future directors, future missionaries overseas in, in the nation, in cities like New York and Los Angeles and Seattle and Denver and Portland and all these lost, unreached people groups we have in America. Some of you know, hey, I'm called to nursing. I'm called to be an engineer. I'm going to glorify God. That's my full-time ministry, and praise God for that. Keep going. My wife's a teacher. God uses her every day. God will use you, and he will be faithful to you. Amen? We need that. Let me tell you something. There are some of you who I know God has been working on your heart to surrender to a full-time call to church ministry. Are you saying no? And why? Is it because you don't think you're going to have no money? <laughs> I have a lot of people to tell me, man, I, I think God's called me to do ministry, but I don't want to be broke. <laughs> At what point does your yes become a no to God? Are you afraid to accept a call to full-time ministry because your family won't support you? Man, that's hard, ain't it? How can you step out and say, hey, I'm going to be a pastor. Hey, I'm going to be a director in ministry. Hey, I'm going to be a missionary, but my family doesn't support me, so I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to keep going on the route my family wants me to go on. Let me ask you something. Do you want to obey God or you want to obey your family? You tell me. It's, I know it's easier to say than it is to do, but you tell me. Who do you want to be obedient to when it's all said and done? I cannot get into my call to ministry tonight. I don't have time for it. I have another point I've got to make from Nehemiah. But if you're in the room tonight and you think even remotely, you don't have to know, but if you think even remotely that you might be called to full-time church ministry, I want to talk to you as a group, <laughs> you know, as a group. I want to talk to you. And what I want you to do is in this moment, I just want you to think. The, the music's not playing. This ain't nothing emotional. I just want you to think what God is calling you to do. If it is possible that God might be calling you to be a pastor, to be a director, to work full-time at a church, 
maybe go overseas in missions or to uh, cities in America on mission, if you think it could be full-time church ministry, what I want you to do is right now, you take your phone. doesn't matter who's looking around. Who cares less who sees you? I want you to take your phone, and I want you to text this right here. I want you to text CALLING. Text the word CALLING to 901-833-7525. You go ahead. You take your phone right now. If that's you and you want to talk, you text CALLING to 901-833-7525. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a call or an in-person meeting with anybody in here who wants to talk more. And at that time and at that setting, I'll share more about my call to ministry full-time, how I knew I was called to be a pastor. I'm going to share more about what it looks like to really go into that calling. So if that's you, you text that, you come and talk to me afterwards, I want to make sure we give people an opportunity to talk about what God is doing in their life. But not just that, I have one more point, and then we're going to be done. Look with me at verse 11. It says that Nehemiah, this is chapter 2, verse 11, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Number three, your calling is not for you. It's for Christ. Amen. Aren't you glad to? (laughs) Aren't you glad that your calling is bigger than you? That God might not call you based on your happiness, but he will call you based on your holiness. That God might not call you on your happiness, but he will call you based on your fulfillment in living for him. It's not for you. It's for his glory. It's for Jesus Christ. Now, Nehemiah is not rebuilding Jerusalem walls to be seen by anybody. Let's talk about this for a moment. It's our last point. Let's nail this thing home tonight. Nehemiah is not doing this to be seen by anybody. Nehemiah is not obeying God and living out his call so that others think more of him. At the end of your life, why in the world would you really want people to think more of you than they think of Jesus Christ? One pastor asked me one time when I was struggling with pride, because I've been there and I know you have too. He said, Daniel, did you ever die on the cross for anybody's sins? So why? And he asked me this. He said, Daniel, so why would you ever want to take glory away from the one who did? Your calling is not for you, it's for Christ. But to be honest, Nehemiah, he's doing this at night. He's not trying to be seen. He's facing opposition. He's still standing up for it. He's not trying to take credit. He's not trying to take glory. Here's a big issue I see. I don't think this will be on the screen, but I'll give it to you. We serve God when we're seen, but we don't serve God when it's unseen. One issue I see very clearly that we have got to continue to grow in as a body of believers here at The View is we have to be willing to serve when we are not seen. If you only serve to be seen, here's what Jesus said about the Pharisees who did that. Matthew 23, verse 5 and 6, Jesus' words. He said, they do everything to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at banquets. They love the front seats in the synagogues. They love it. That's Jesus' words about the Pharisees. They love to be seen. They love to sit in the high places. They love it. They do, and they live for God so that they get credit and they get glory. What if you live an entire life? What if you live 80 years, and all the credit and glory for your life goes to God? Would you be okay with that? That's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. He deserves all the credit and the glory because he is the one who has created us, came for us, died for us, rose for us, and has called us. He deserves it all. I love this quote by Spurgeon. It says, if you want to serve God, go and do it and let other people find it out afterwards. 
So this is so, I love it because it pertains so much to Nehemiah. Spurgeon said, you have no need to tell what you are going to do. And I may add, there is no need for you retelling what you have done. For very, very frequently, God withdraws himself when we boast of what is being done. Woo! Sometimes, to be honest with you, I'm scared to talk about what God's doing at The View. People ask me sometimes about the baptisms. To be honest with you, I'm scared to talk about it sometimes because I really fear God enough that I believe he could stop doing it if we get prideful and start boasting about it. And God will move in your life. He will bless you. He will use you. But when you start to get prideful and think it is you, sometimes he will withdraw and pull back his involvement in what's happening. And that's scary. I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for me. Nehemiah doesn't want the credit and the glory. Are you okay with God getting all the credit and the glory? The final thing I'll say to you is don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that your professors do not believe this. Hear me now. Sambalit and Tobiah hate what Nehemiah is doing, and when you live for God, people are going to hate it too. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not. Jesus was not ashamed of you when he died on that cross. Don't you be ashamed of him when you go out there into that world. You stand up for the gospel. There's a time in all of our lives when we're kind of ashamed of our parents. I remember in middle school, I love my parents. My parents are great, but I remember being dropped off by my parents at school and being ashamed to be seen with them. You remember sneaking out of the car, (laughs) trying not to let any of your classmates see you with your parents? I remember one of my teachers said, said as clear as day. She said, you'll stop being ashamed of your parents when you realize all that they have sacrificed for you. I think about my dad who gave up having nice shoes and nice cars so that I could do well. I think about my mom praying for me every day. And I realized in high school, I was like, why in the world would I ever be ashamed of my parents? Some of us in here are ashamed of Jesus Christ. And we're ashamed of the gospel. And it's quite simply because our hearts have not truly realized the sacrifice that he has made for us. He loves you. He is not ashamed of you. And he will use you this week. So you go out there and you go proudly, you go confidently, you share the gospel, you love Jesus, and you don't take any credit or glory for it. Because your calling takes time. Your calling can be scary. But ultimately, your calling is not for you. It's for who? Jesus Christ.